0: Hi, I'm Larry King. Do you own a small
1: business and need money? Whoa, wait, wait. Hello, welcome to episode 31 of the Foodcast. I'm Davey H., and this is the Food Wonk episode.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I do own a small business and I do need money, but I'm not Larry King. I wear my bald spot proudly but I am as happy as Larry, and happy to be here to present this episode of the Foodcast, entitled Food Wonk. A wonk is someone who takes an excessive interest in minor details of political policy. Ergo, a word you'd expect a wonk to use, a food wonk is someone with an excessive interest in minor details of food policy and its politics. Longtime listeners of the Foodcast may think this is an apt description of someone associated with this show. We touch on these aspects all the time. We did it in episode 20, Fight Hunger, when we talked about the challenges of getting fresh, healthy food to people with low incomes. And in episode 25, Health Theater, when we talked about the influence lobbyists have on food policy and how healthcare is the biggest industry in some of America's biggest cities and that their dependence means the sicker their population, the healthier their economy. The nice thing for you all was that those episodes weren't 100% focused on wonkiness. But this episode is all wonk, all the time. We start off with a rant about the current dietary guidelines for Americans. We talk about the process, its problems, and how it affects you. Next, I discuss my attendance at a meeting with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in which every special interest imaginable spent an entire day debating what the word healthy means. It makes her fascinating podcast material to people who have nothing better to do. And since I assume you do have better things to do, I try and keep it accessible and light. But come on, we spent an entire day debating the word healthy. What do you expect? The Dietary Guidelines for Americans? They're for the dogs. To understand why I think the Dietary Guidelines for Americans is for the dogs, we first need to talk a bit about what dogs eat. When it comes to which dog food to choose, the dog doesn't have much say in the matter. The buyer and the end user are different. And because of this, dog food manufacturers make huge investments to make sure their products look and smell appealing to the human buyer, even though we all know most dogs are perfectly happy munching on poop. For example, despite the fact that dogs don't see color the same way we do, Manufacturers dye their gray goo to a color humans associate with food. They cut it in shapes that look like people food, even though dogs are just as prone to eat things shaped like people. Fido, what happened to my Star Wars action figure? They also hire human pet food samplers, a job that requires an advanced college degree. Little did you know all these years later that when you got in trouble for convincing your little brother to eat dog food, You were really preparing him for a lucrative career. This peculiar aspect of dog food applies to the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, and in the case of these guidelines, the dogs is us. So in this part of the Foodcast, I rant about the Dietary Guidelines for Americans and answer the question, if we're the dogs, who's the buyer? And why do the guidelines matter? Surely we can ignore them if we want to. We don't have to do what the government says. Or is resistance futile? Finally, we'll look at how other countries tackle this problem and see what they do differently. But before we cover these topics, we first have to touch on what are the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. The first Dietary Guidelines for Americans came out in 1980. They were born after a valiant but ultimately fruitless attempt by Senator George McGovern to combat the simultaneously growing scourges of hunger and chronic disease. Hunger is a result of not eating enough. Chronic disease is often a result of not eating well. The food industry generally applauds all efforts to address hunger. That's because feeding the hungry also feeds corporate coffers. It's one of the reasons that the farm bill that stumbles through Congress every few years has food assistance programs wrapped into it. But efforts to address chronic disease caused by malnutrition from eating too much of the wrong stuff? They're less appreciated. Recommendations from the McGovern report, such as, quote, Eat less meat, less fat, less saturated fat, less cholesterol, less sugar, less salt, and more fruits, vegetables, unsaturated fats, and cereal products, especially whole grain cereals, Well, that really upset the meat, fat, saturated fat, cholesterol, sugar, and salt special interests. On the other hand, Kellogg's and General Mills, they were as happy as Larry. And we all know how happy Larry is.
0: Hi, I'm Larry King, and I rarely endorse any product, but I trust Omega XL to relieve my joint pain. used to be that my back would hurt, but thanks Omega XL, I don't have that same pain anymore. Hi, I'm Larry King. Do you own a small business and need money? LendVantage can help you get from $5,000 to $250,000. Hi, I'm Larry King. And I'm his wife, Sean. We are excited to tell you about Breath Gems. Breath Gems are powerful dual-action capsules.
1: See what I mean? Larry's pretty happy. His pain is gone, he has access to cash, he's married to the beautiful and talented Sean, and his breath doesn't smell like old man. Add to that his many endorsement deals, despite the fact that he doesn't do many, and you get happy. Anyway, the special interests affected by the McGovern Committee recommendation to eat less countered with an army of lobbyists, doctors, and scientists fatten on their corporate teat and their bacon and ranch-flavored chocolate-covered cheese puffs. They flooded the media with advertising dollars and donated so-called education materials to schools. In the end, the government cried uncle, but not without agreeing to revisit the subject regularly so they could incorporate the latest research. Every five years since, the United States Department of Agriculture and the Department of Health and Human Services released an updated version. Shocking, I know. What other government program works with such consistency and regularity? We've all grown so cynical. The last thing we expect is that an effort that protects our most vulnerable citizens would survive the gridlock in Washington for well over 30 years and advance like clockwork. And by vulnerable citizens, I mean the meat, fat, saturated fat, cholesterol, sugar, and salt special interests that really drive policy in America. Because if you recall, when it comes to the dietary guidelines for Americans, we're the dogs and not the decision makers. Who are the buyers? the decision makers. Those responsible for the guidelines aren't shy about this. The introduction clearly says, quote, the main purpose of the dietary guidelines is to inform the development of federal food, nutrition, and health policies and programs. The primary audiences are policymakers as well as nutrition and health professionals, not the general public, unquote. They never really state the driving force behind the guidelines, but here's a hint. The main mission of the United States Department of Agriculture is to help rural America thrive. And that was great when rural America consisted of Mr. Green Jeans and the folks at Green Acres and Old McDonald. But today, rural America equals Monsanto, ConAgra, and not Old McDonald, but Ronald McDonald. This comes up again later in the episode, but to close on the impact of the guidelines, it's all right in that previous quote. The guidelines are used to decide what nutrition research the government funds, what corporate welfare is directed to which special interests, the composition of all food served in government institutions, including the military, the medical advice you receive, and so on. So if that's enough to make you care about the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, good for you. There's advice in there you can directly adopt for greater health. If you're comfortable reading between the lines, they're an excellent source of nutrition guidance. But don't worry if you're not comfortable. If you stay tuned to this and future episodes of the Foodcast, you'll be comfortable in the end. Or as comfortable as anyone can be around someone who thinks rude noises are funny. I also wrote an in-depth series of blog posts, and I have a link in the show notes. If you don't care about the Dietary Guidelines for Americans... Then that just means you're happy with your role as a dog. You're okay that they're not simply the dietary guidelines for Americans. They're the dietary guidelines for American business. And as a result, the people who make your food will continue to sell you crap, but diet and shape it to look like food. No matter what they do, however, crap is just a slightly more polite version of poop. I have one more comment on how the government develops the guidelines that we should touch on before we sink our teeth into the content itself. Before releasing the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, a committee with the creative name of the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee issues recommendations for its contents for the next half decade. The committee operates with the best of intentions, which we all know paves the road to hell. Their report is then subject to public review and comment before the USDA and Department of Health and Human Services releases the final version. For the current version, the committee issued the 570-page report in February of 2015. The public review from special interests and their highly compensated attack dogs in Congress demonstrated that they were not happy, including Larry Bouchon of Indiana's 8th District, who sits on the Subcommittee of Environment and the Economy. you think with a name like Larry he'd be happy. Meanwhile, Representative Brenda Lawrence of Michigan's 14th District remained in a fine humor. So never forget, Lawrence is not a Larry. And with that background, we can look at what the guidelines say and what they don't say. The released version of the Dietary Guidelines for Americans distilled the 570-page committee report down to 209 pages. Contrast that with Brazil, whose guidelines for Brazilians is 80 pages, or Sweden's, which is a succinct 26 pages. I bring up these two other versions because I want to point out some unique aspects about them later. But for now, with 209 pages of guidelines and 570 pages of recommendations and analysis from the committee to wade through, there's only one thing I can do to cut to the chase. It's table time. That's right, with all that data, I had to organize everything into a table and I have that table in the show notes. But knowing it's tough to access show notes when you're tooling down Interstate 69, or while you're walking your dog as it sniffs out whatever some previous creature left behind as a snack, I'll ever so briefly summarize this nifty collection of rows and columns. Don't worry, I won't be doing the equivalent of that tool at work who reads directly off the PowerPoint slide, and I'll only give one example of my observations, because it gets pretty wonky. The intent of the table is to differentiate between what the committee recommended and what the guidelines actually ended up saying. And you might think that the advisory committee, made up of boring food nerds like me whose job it is to read dry nutrition research and distill it into a 500-plus page document, would be more obtuse than the summarized version meant to appease the yo-yos in Congress. That would be wrong. The guidelines say, quote, Previous editions of the Dietary Guidelines focused primarily on individual dietary components, such as food groups and nutrients. However, people do not eat food groups and nutrients in isolation, but rather in combination, and the totality of the diet forms an overall eating pattern. And if you are tooling down I-69 right now and you just heard sirens in the background, Don't worry, it's not you, it's me. Apparently the food police are coming to take me away. Anyway, the translation of the gobbledygook we just heard is, we gotta stop telling people to modify their diets based on obscure ingredients like sodium and saturated fat, and instead tell them how to create meals and lifestyles for optimal health. Cool, and this is totally in line with what the advisory committee recommended. But things fall apart from there. Because when you look at what foods the advisory committee and the final guidelines say we should decrease in our diet, the committee says, and remember, that's us geeks in the basement of the science building, they say reduce red and processed meat, sugar-sweetened food and drinks, and refined grains. The final guidelines say reduce saturated fat, trans fat, added sugar, and sodium. So what happened to meals and lifestyles? The advisory committee walked that talk, but the final guidelines, when faced with pressure from the meat, wheat, and corn lobby, went from explicit advice to reduce consumption of, for example, processed meat, to reduce consumption of saturated fat and sodium, code words for processed meat. People who still tolerate the foodcast know that this is essentially the same advice, but beyond the three of you, that's not really common knowledge. It's the equivalent of wanting your dog to stop sniffing the poop while you're out on a walk and attempting to get this done not by tugging on the leash, but explaining what's in the poop instead. Fido, please remove your proboscis from that fecal material as it contains matter that was not digestible by its previous owner, such as bile, mucus, and the lightsaber from a Star Wars action figure. There are a lot more details in the guidelines on specific foods and nutrients, and you can read my multiple posts on the subject that go into detail on the recommendations for fat, protein, sodium, cholesterol, sugar, artificial sweeteners, sustainability, spoiler alert, they say nothing, and coffee. Sorry for that. It's the coffee talking. But as I tend to get long-winded, mostly because I feel the need to talk about dog food, poop, and Larry, I'll close this segment with What actions can you take now? Because reading over 700 pages of food policy information doesn't keep me off the streets for long. I also like to take a look at how other countries manage their citizens' health. I've done analyses on my blog about how Australia has a pretty sensible set of dietary guidelines, something to do with shrimp on Barbies, whereas Canada abuses its tide industry even more than we do. Since those posts... I've looked at some other equivalents to our dietary guidance, and two in particular stand out as something that applies well for everybody. First, there's Brazil. As a culture, Brazilians are pretty chatty. I know that's a gross generalization, but even the Brazilian organization that promotes Brazil as a business destination say, "...Brazilians are usually very talkative and cheerful and use the personal contact such as touching arms and elbows and backs often." Brazilians appreciate jokes and spirituous comments. So I was surprised that what the U.S. tried to do in its 200-plus page guidelines, Brazil actually does in 80. And here's a summary that comes directly from that document. 1. Make natural or minimally processed foods the basis of your diet. Natural or minimally processed foods in great variety, mainly of plant origin, are the basis for diets that are nutritious delicious, appropriate, and supportive of socially and environmentally sustainable food systems. Wow. You know, that's pretty much everything in our advisory committee's report that the guidelines were afraid to say. brings tears to my eyes. The Brazilian guidelines also go on to say, use oils, fats, salt, and sugar in small amounts, limit the use of processed foods, and avoid ultra-processed foods. And that's it. And because I'm a bit like a Brazilian at times, I'll make the following two talkative and spirituous comments myself. First of all, the guidelines above are repetitions of the same theme. Eat real food, avoid processed foods. Secondly, with that statement that our diets must be supportive of socially and environmentally sustainable food systems, Brazil recognizes the integral role that food has in our lives. Food isn't simply a source of nutrition. Personal health isn't the only driving force that needs to be honored when we eat. Food impacts all aspects of our value system, including our spiritual, cultural, and societal needs. Food-related decisions are local and global. And anything that tries to boil it into the transactional system like our dietary guidelines try and do is just a waste of time. The next and final example is Sweden. And the Swedes like to deny that they're reserved... But even a Swedish government website that tries to dispel that rumor says, quote, it's true that the Swedes aren't the world's most outgoing people, unquote. So it comes as no surprise that their dietary guidelines are only 26 pages long. Furthermore, the whole thing can be summarized in one graphic that doesn't depend on pyramids, plates, rainbows, or unicorns. In fact, the Swedish dietary guidelines are the stark, sleek, IKEA-furnished home of dietary guidelines. White background, 29 words, 5 colors, including the white background, and 3 pictures of foods people eat. The poster advises readers to have more vegetables, fruits, and berries, fish and shellfish, nuts and seeds, and exercise. It advises that we switch to whole grains, healthy fats, and low-fat dairy products. And it suggests we consume less red and processed meat, salt, sugar, and alcohol. Alcohol? No wonder the Swedes are reserved. And there you have it. In the battle of American exceptionalism over neo-socialist European and Latin American systems, the commies take this round. Here in America, we make this problem so much harder than it needs to be, and realize that what I just spent the last 15 minutes describing is the tip of the iceberg for everything else that the government does to influence what you eat. And of course, you can ignore it all. But if you think you're still not affected by any of this, you're in denial. Because this affects our national security, our environment, our health care costs, and more. I guarantee you that no matter what you think your country's most important issue is, its food policy has a direct impact. But ending this segment with the small picture and not that big picture view, when it comes to the optimal diet, eat real food, avoid processed food. Everything else is literally on the table. What's it like working through one of these government nutrition regulation processes? Well, we're about to find out. Today's March 9th, 2017, and I'm headed to the Hilton Hotel in Rockville, Maryland, to attend a meeting sponsored by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to accept public comments on the use of the term healthy in the labeling of human food products. I have no idea what to expect in this theater of the absurd, but our tax dollars paid for this meeting I may as well get to experience it. This whole caper did not come to fruition because we now have a president who loves taco bowls on May 5th, KFC famous bowls on most other days, an horror of horrors, well-done steak with ketchup, and get this, pizza with a knife and fork. The process began last year under the Obama administration. That's right, citizens of the Washington metropolitan area. It's all Obama's fault that that 2000 Oldsmobile Alero was on the beltway on March 9th. The regulation on how to apply the term healthy to foods is over 20 years old. The current version is from a time when we thought reducing fat in the American diet was all we needed to do to help us lose weight, shed chronic disease, and bring to an end the epidemic of women cutting their hair like Rachel in the TV show Friends. The rule that still sits on the book says healthy food must be low in fat and saturated fat and have limited amounts of sodium and cholesterol. The food must also contain at least 10% of the recommended daily value of one of the following, vitamin A, vitamin C, iron, calcium, protein, or fiber. Some people jokingly called this list of nutrients the jelly bean rule because of the possibility that jelly beans, which contain no fat or sodium, could be labeled as healthy. Ronald Reagan would be proud. But other than me still driving a car from the 20th century, times have changed. We now know that dietary cholesterol may not be such a big deal. We know that the quality of the fat we eat is more important than the quantity. And the American diet is no longer deficient in vitamin A or calcium. It's deficient in vitamin D and potassium, neither of which qualify food for healthy status but are essential for healthy living. What brought this whole thing to a head? Well, it all came to fruition the good old-fashioned American way, through a lawsuit. The makers of Kind Bars petitioned the FDA for a change because their bars, that are full of food supported by the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, including nuts, seeds, fruit, and fiber, couldn't promote its health cred because the nuts made the bars high in fat. This disqualified Kind Bars from the current definition. It also opened up a can of worms, which could be classified as healthy even if they're gummy worms. And to Kine's point, they took exception that Pop-Tarts, Fruit Loops, and low-fat pudding cups all qualify as healthy, while avocado, almonds, and salmon do not. And so the FDA released a request for information of May 2016, soliciting input for change. And the meeting I went to was all part of that process. All anyone needed to attend this meeting was to sign up ahead of time. No proof of expertise or citizenship was required. In fact, you didn't even need to sign up ahead of time, you probably only needed to sign up to get an attendee packet and a badge. And I bet you could score an attendee packet, even if you didn't sign up ahead of time. The packet contained an agenda, bios of the scheduled speakers, a synopsis of the dietary guidelines for Americans, as if I needed one of those, instructions for making formal comments, set of questions the FDA had for attendees, and, what may have been most important to me, an attendee list. I walked into the room just as things were getting started. Our director of the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition at FDA. We also have Doug Valentine, who is our director of the Office of Nutrition and Food Labeling, the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition at FDA. And they're both here to provide opening remarks and an overview of the term healthy. And so with that, Susan... Thank thank you, Karen. So let me begin by adding my welcome to the audience and my appreciation for taking the time to help participate in this meeting. I'm really delighted that we were able to schedule this meeting during the month of March, and that's because it's National Nutrition Month. That's right. March is National Nutrition Month. And along that theme, March is also National Celery Month, National Peanut Month, and National Frozen Food Month. The day we were meeting was also National Crab Meat Day and National Meatball Day. You could do an entire episode of Chopped based on the foods we were celebrating on that day. But I digress. Beyond opening remarks and setting the context, the morning offered speakers from the Center for Science in the Public Interest, KIND, makers of KIND bars, coincidence? I think not. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and ConAgra Brands, makers of just about everything in your freezer, including Marie Callender's, Banquet, and of course, Healthy Choice brand frozen foods. Here are the key points I heard. The FDA is in a quandary on whether the word healthy should be based on nutrient-based claims, so fat, sodium, vitamins, and other contents, or if they should be based on food group-based claims, like whole grains, or vegetables in unprocessed forms, as opposed to french fries or cookies that can be formulated to meet the healthy requirement. And keep in mind, there's only so much space on a food label, and you have to make sure there's enough space for all the other label requirements, such as ingredient lists, nutrition facts, allergy warnings, meaningless claims of horrible ingredients the product doesn't contain, including gluten, hormones, and GMOs, even for foods that never would contain those things, and pictures of whatever cartoon character endorses the product and is involved in the cross-marketing effort. The FDA solution to this lack of space is the inclusion of so-called QR codes on the products. They're those barcode-like graphics that you snap with your smartphone camera, and it takes you to a website that has the info you really need. I have a problem with that, and I'll get to it later. Lindsay Moyer from the Center for Science in the Public Interest got up and advocated for only using the healthy labels sparingly. Her point was that truly healthy foods don't have labels, pointing to the vegetables and fruits in the produce aisle. The Center for Science in the Public Interest is a nifty organization. they to food and nutrition policy what the ACLU is to the American justice system. I don't always agree with their position, but I'm glad they're there testing the boundaries. Justin Mervis from Kind lobbied for dropping minimal requirements for the healthy label and just applying it for foods with low or no added fat, sugar, or salt. This is the position you'd expect from a maker of minimally processed snack bars made from whole nuts that also gets a sweetness from dried fruit, which isn't classified as a sugar, but is only marginally more nutritious. Pepin Tunma from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics which on the surface is uniquely qualified to represent a patient-based scientific view of nutrition, but whose ranks are continually undermined by leadership and sponsorship from Kraft Foods and Coca-Cola, said the whole thing is too big a problem and just shouldn't be allowed. Finally, Kristen Reimers of ConAgra threw a terribly complicated table on the screen, a table so ugly, even I couldn't love it, that subtly said, Oh, come on, people are going to buy food for the flavor couldn't we allow just a little more salt, sugar, and saturated fat and still say it's healthy? You may think I'm making that up, but here's what she literally said. Quote, if we don't have slightly higher amounts of those nutrients that carry the flavor, then the food won't be accepted by the consumer and they'll fail. Unquote. And when she said those nutrients that carry the flavor, she was referring back to an earlier reference of salt, sugar, and saturated fat. I don't disagree with her, but I don't think ConAgra's inability to make healthy food that people want is really our problem. I guess I'll give her a pass, though. I mean, after all, it was Frozen Food Month, and that's her business. She probably had a hangover from frozen salt and sugar in margarita form. We then took a break, and for me, that was the real fun. Fun, because I could get some coffee. And you'll be glad to know that the government doesn't supply food wonks free coffee funded by your tax dollars. Fun, because I could go through the list of attendees and spaz out over all the different product companies, trade groups, government offices, food service companies, academics, and plain old run-of-the-mill average citizens with an unnatural, irrational, and insatiable curiosity about nutrition and food systems. The meeting had about 250 people in attendance. The FDA also provided web access for people around the world. Of the attendees, nearly half were from government, not all from the U.S. government. There were people from latin america asia europe everywhere the embassy of denmark had representation no doubt in an interest of ensuring the place of cheese and other danish varieties on the healthy list while in line for coffee i struck up a conversation with a guy from the embassy of canada Canada. feeling generally intimidated by the nutrition and food policy experience and formal education represented by everyone else in attendance As compared to my limited years in the business and mostly self-taught education, I tried to overcompensate and bloviated to my Canadian friend about the shortfalls of Canada's dietary guidelines. Being Canadian, he agreed and even gave me more dirt. About 20% of the attendees were from food companies. I already mentioned some, but rest assured that Unilever, Cisco, Hormel, Pepsi, Nestle, Kellogg's, and so on were all represented. And those trade associations I obsessed over that I described in episode 25 of the Foodcast. Health Theater? Oh yeah, they were there. The North American Meat Institute. National Dairy Council. Sugar Association. National Processed Raspberry Council. Raisin Administrative Committee. Avocados from Mexico. International Tree Nut Council. National Pasta Association. And I kid you not, the Pet Food Institute. Yeah. The Pet Food Institute was at a meeting for use of the term healthy in the labeling of human food products. And you thought I was only joking back in the segment about the Dietary Guidelines for Americans when I said that we were dogs. The time had come to file back into the conference room and hear comments from attendees. If people weren't asked to identify who they represented before speaking, you'd have been able to guess. And I went into this thing with absolutely no intent of saying anything. I just wanted to learn. I wasn't kidding. These are people who've been parsing sentences about nutrition for 20 to 30 years, and most have advanced degrees. But I listened to what Linda Moyer said about truly healthy foods having no labels. And I listened to the FDA and other policy folks say, don't worry about it. We'll give people online access to all the data they need by scanning products in the store. And I listened to Pepin Tuma say, the problem's just too big. And finally, I know that the problem with calling any food healthy is that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. I'm not intimidated by public speaking at all. I'm not afraid of making a fool of myself. Anyone who's listened to many episodes of the Foodcast knows this, including episode 25 where I sing. Still, I did feel intimidated in this crowd. But I got up on the microphone And I said my piece. And I said it in the form of questions intended to provoke thought, because that's what coaches do. Yeah, my name is Dave Hellman. I'm just here as a citizen who thinks about food systems. And it's a three-part question, but I'll try and make it brief. First, we've heard a lot about the different nuance where fat and cholesterol and different ingredients may or may not be healthy. And when you look at it at an individual basis, it may be healthy for one person and not the other. Can that amount of nuance really ever be expressed in the real estate on a packaged food? The second part of the question is we heard in the first segment about maybe depending on QR codes and technology to fix that problem, so sending people offline. How does that help people who don't have access to that technology? In this environment where people are told they have to make a choice between an iPhone and their health care, that makes it a tough problem. So, in recognition of what Mr. Tuma said, I think, where we were talking about maybe the labels just don't make sense, uh, what Ms. Moyer said about the healthiest foods seem to be the unpackaged foods, is the real answer packaged foods should carry a label that says, If you can read this, this may not be healthy. Okay, I'm not too proud of my delivery, but I'm pleased with the spirit of what I said. That spirit was, I don't believe the government or any organization can do an effective job in helping people make specific healthy choices for food at the point of purchase. There's just too much nuance. How much of the food are you eating? What else are you eating? What would you be eating instead if you weren't eating that? And what are your individual goals and needs? that nuance just can't show up on a label. And so I agree, the word healthy and its derivatives have no place on food labels. Tell people ingredients, give them the nutrition facts, that is protein, fat, carbohydrates, vitamin and mineral amounts, and trust they can figure it out on their own and with an expert who knows them as a person. I got a few chuckles from the audience when I made my comments. It was a serious crowd, so I didn't expect much. And I was encouraged that they laugh when they were supposed to. I was further encouraged in breakout groups afterwards when people referred to my comments in a helpful and not disparaging way. For me, this was a great experience. For you, I hope you walk away realizing that every time you buy food, there's a fight to influence your decisions. Research shows people will choose foods that have healthy claims over identical versions of that food that lack the claim on the package. What do you do? Do you assume someone's looking out for you and that the claim is meaningful? Or do you think about what that claim really means and make sure it survives your bullcrap detector? If you'd like to submit your own comments to the FDA on the topic of use of the term healthy in the labeling of human food products, you have until April 26, 2017 to do so. I have a link to the instructions in the show notes. And so ends your introduction to food wonkiness. Or as Mrs. H likes to say to me, Is that a banana in your pocket, or did you just attend a meeting about the use of the term healthy in the labeling of human food products? I want to thank you if you listened to all this. I know it was extra wonky. But if you want to know how the sausage is made, with its saturated fat and sodium and all, it's not always going to be pleasant. If this episode didn't scare you away and you want me to keep on keeping on, I sure could use a review on iTunes. Recently I was talking to someone who was considering subscribing. And believe me, I didn't bring up the subject. I know it's hard to believe, but I don't walk around all day saying, I do a podcast, please listen. Anyway, he looked up the podcast while we were talking and noted that there were only five reviews, and said, you know, that's pretty much what he uses to decide whether he's going to listen or not. Well, I convinced him, but I don't know how many other potential listeners I could meet on the street. So, please, I know that there are more than five listeners out there. I can see the statistics. And we podcasters live and die by the reviews. That's my pitch for this episode. You'll have a couple weeks to think about it as I'll be traveling for business and pleasure for the next two weeks. I wouldn't expect another episode of the Foodcast until sometime between National Grilled Cheese Day, April 12th, and National Banana Day, April 15th. On the other hand, if I can find some interesting subject in my travels, I may do a surprise episode. If you subscribe to the Foodcast, it'll just come to you. Otherwise, I'll do the normal posting and you'll get notified. But until then, remember what your old pal Cookie Monster always says.
0: Well, me known for eating cookie when me don't fish shout cookie trying to throw oil fans a curve. What's he doing eating fish or vegetable dish? Man, he sure got lots of nerve. Well, me answer you straight when you're filling a plate, taking only cookies all wrong. Because you also got to eat fruit or veggies or meat if you want to be healthy and strong. Yo, healthy food. food. Boy, it tastes so, so good. Food. Me want healthy, dude. Because me eat healthy food. food. Me love it. Boiled Boil for stew. Boil Boil me love it. Boil oh, will like you? you just greatly good. Eat some healthy food. Menu, you get more out of every meal. You need balanced diet. Come on and try it. Not believe how great you feel. Munch some carrots or beans or poultry and greens, along with your chocolate chip. And banana or plum will make you go young. Nutrition, it really is. Girls, help me Ripe pork, chicken, and swordfish, tuna, and trout, and apple, and cherry, and all kinds of berry, and broccoli, and Brussels sprout, their lettuce, tomato, boiled new
1: potato, There's spinach, and celery, and beef,
0: milk, and honey, and cheese, peanuts, peppers, and peas, pears, peaches, and cream of wheat, word up, healthy food, boy, oh, it tastes so good, Need one healthy dude, cause we eat healthy food. let Go-